Hello everyone, Dallas Rogers here and welcome to this year's Festival of Urbanism and City Road Podcast Book Club. It's great to have you along. We've got an exciting collection of conversations from authors and readers coming up, including my chat with Anna Clark about her new book, Making Australia, Jared Haw about his new book, Visions of Nature, and Megan Nethercote about her book on high-rise living. And we've got so much more besides. All the details are on the City Road Podcast website at cityroadpod.org. But today I'm talking with journalist Paul Daly about his new book, Jesus Town. It's a multi-generational saga about the Australian colonial frontier and it confronts the violence and cultural theft that took place there. And I'm chatting with Paul, who's in his home, on Zoom. Paul, thanks so much for joining us on this book club podcast. And I ripped through your book very recently. I was on a holiday down in Canberra, actually, and um, I whipped through the book. I really loved it. It actually really spoke to me personally because my own family is tied up with colonization, um, particularly early colonization along the Diarub and Hawkesbury Nepean River. And we might talk a little bit about that later, but before we get there, I thought it'd be good if you could just tell us about some of the key characters in this book. I don't want to give away the the book itself. There's a few twists and turns in here and I'd like readers to come to that themselves. But for me, the key characters are this grandson-grandfather duo, Rennie and Patrick, and the two Aboriginal characters, actually, Tamar and Jericho. Can you talk through those two characters and maybe some of the broad story arc of the book? Yeah, sure. So Tamar and Jericho are um, twins. They're Aboriginal um, people. They're probably in their mid to late 40s. They live and were brought up in a place called Jesus Town, which is not geolocated in the plot, really. It's somewhere just if you imagine it north of the Brisbane line, maybe east or west, wherever you like. And and I can kind of talk about the reasoning for that later. But um, they come and go from Jesus Town. They spend a bit of time in the south too. Tamar is a native title lawyer. Her twin brother, Jericho, is quite an enigmatic kind of, uh, he's an activist, but also has been an academic historian. Um, pretty switched on dude, been at the barricades, you know, for years, but he's kind of withdrawn to, to his country to really try and get a better deal on everything for his people, including, you know, um, uh, native title and, and mining rights. And um, and also repatriation is a really big deal, and it's a big theme in this book, and um, the repatriation of ancestral remains, which was stolen from their community. He's very active in trying to get those remains back from um, overseas institutions. On the other side, you've got, I guess, the the white protagonists and the story is told through their eyes because I wouldn't inhabit black characters. On the one hand, you've got Patrick Renmark, who's about the same age as um, Tamar and Jericho. He's um, he's a pretty flawed dude, actually, and he's a, he started life as a journalist and um, wasn't great at it, but he kind of knew... He knew how to how to sell a story, and then at his father's insistence, he thought it was a good idea to move into academic history. And somehow he got his PhD. I don't quite know how. And um, he kind of followed the money and started writing um, popular history in the in the military vein because he kind of cottoned on to that mawkishness around 
85, 90 years after Gallipoli that really Australia was defining its nationhood more and more heavily uh, according to its first world war experience. And he saw a market for this and he milked it and he did pretty well. But for various reasons, he's working in London as an Australian, kind of confused about his identity, really. He doesn't know if he's English or Australian. And his life falls apart and he finds himself back in Jesus Town, nowhere else to go, really, trying to write the story, grappling with this yarn about his very kind of slippery grandfather who was, you know, himself kind of a journalist, adventurer and autodidact anthropologist who was touted to have um, saved the people who are the people that live in and around Jesus Town and the coast and the hinterland. And Patrick kind of grapples with the story of this guy, but Patrick only does monodimensions, you know, and he finds that his, his grandfather is perplexing because his life and his interactions with the local people were so um, complicated. So they're the four main characters. Excellent. And there's a couple of things I want to pick up on there a little bit later, particularly storyism and popular history. But before we go there, I just wanted to know who this book is for, because as I said, it, it really spoke to me. I've been trying to grapple with my own complicity and my own family's complicity in colonial violence. There's uh, right up the front of the book, there's a little paragraph. I'll just read you a bit of it that I wanted to know whether this was part of the narrative of the book or actually part of the, the aim of the book. And it says, uh, but what can we ever truly know about our fathers and our fathers' fathers and their fathers? And whose interest is it to know? It's a dangerous business, this hacking away at the armadillo-like protective shells, this sort of digging into family histories, um, which is a central part of this story, and particularly these dark family histories of frontier colonial violence. And I was actually thinking of Chelsea Wadigo's book, and I, I was reading that another day in the colony. She pretty much says in that book, this is a book for blackfellas. This isn't for you. You can read it if you like and listen in, but this is not a book for you. And I, I kind of got the sense that this is a book for me. This is a book for me to reflect on. Is that a misreading of your intention here? No, I, I don't think so, Dallas. I mean, it's really interesting that you talk about this thing in your family background. Like that's a really common thing amongst, you know, colonist families. A lot of us have got that and I've kind of got it in a different way, but I, I was never pretending to myself or anyone else that I was ever going to tell Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people in this book anything that they weren't absolutely conversant with, given their experiences, you know, inevitably of the racism and oppression and generational trauma that sort of comes out in this book. So really, I guess Anyone can read it. It's for them if they're, they're interested, of course, but it's for a much broader Australian audience, I think, and I, and I hope maybe an international audience too. I think it's probably going to make some people uncomfortable, some non-Indigenous people who live in this country uncomfortable, and, and hey, I'm kind of okay with that because I've done a fair bit of that in, in my journalism too, focusing on a similar space. And I guess, you know, the story about the fathers and sons and and what do we want to know and what is it safe to know and what is it too confronting to know it's um it's a bit of a bit of a metaphor maybe a bit in your face i don't know but for the way many of our cultural leaders and politicians view the country you know we don't like as a nation prodding that stuff too much and peeling back those layers and it, and it's just kind of like that with the forefather thing I, i've got a forefather myself who 
you know, he died nearly 100 years ago and there were a lot of things written and said about him and, you know, a lot of things that the family has said about him that have turned out to not be entirely true. So the Grandfather Project is another writing project of mine and it's permeated this one too. Yeah, and I guess Gallipoli and other sort of stories about Australian masculinity and Australian identity are woven through this in a in quite an interesting way. I recommend people read that. I wanted to talk about some of the literary devices that you use here, some of the ways that you tell this story, which are very interesting for an academic, because a lot of them are about academic practice. There, there are some journalism in here, but there is actually a lot of academia in here, both disciplinary stuff and the way that you're telling this story. And um, the first one I actually wanted to talk about was setting up this tension in popular history, really, about storyism and the way that Patrick goes about both researching and writing his histories. And he's, as you say, he's a very sloppy historian, um, almost purposely sloppy in some ways. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing because I've had some tension between my own work and that of academic historians, not recently, but 12, 13 years ago, I did a book called Bersheba, which was, someone called it Donzo History, which I'm really happy to own, but it was a story about the Australian light horse in the First World War and how these kind of guys who were painted as heroes for their participation in the charge of Bersheba, amongst other things, were also capable of massacring you know, an Arab village and a a nearby Bedouin village. Without going into details, that kind of really recast the type of book I was trying to tell. And at the time, because this was really, it was a narrative nonfiction, it was was part memoir, it it was not by any means a conventional military history, and I've never called myself a historian. It copped quite a bit of criticism, particularly in the reviews from academic military historians. And who said, oh, look, we knew all that. And I was kind of like, well, did, did we really? I mean, you know, the, the, the massacre might have been mentioned in, in two pages of an official history, you know, nearly 100 years ago. Does that mean that the country knew it? So I'd kind of been caught up in that tension. And since then, it seems to me when I go to the airport and there's that airport bookshelf, this kind of wall of machismo books by blokes about blokes with guns and that counts as Australian history, there's this real tension between that and the nuance that so many academic historians have come to the forefront of in telling about the true genesis of Australian nationhood, you know, the fact that white federation wasn't this kind of bloodless agreement between colonies. It was built on the great land grab, the great violent dispossession. And I think there's a real tension between that national foundation story and that wall of military machismo. And that's really just what I'm sort of pointing to. And it's it's more nuanced than that too, because there is some more accessible, for want of a better term, popular history that is now going to that contested space, to that really difficult story of the frontier, including a lot of fiction. And, you know, Indigenous writers are doing a real heavy lifting on this too. Um, historians, you know, like Tony Birch and Gary Foley, for example, John Maynard, uh, and Tony, who's also a historian, and then all the um, the fantastic novelists, you know, Melissa Lukashenko and um, Claire Coleman, Kim Scott and others. So really I was just trying to 
go to that to that intellectual historical literary tension that is a really good thing I think because it makes us talk about it. I assume Gonzo history is a relation or a reference to Hunter S. Thompson and his Gonzo journalism. I, I would I would take that as a compliment. Yeah, I was happy to wear that. <laughs> and it, it was actually um, it actually came from a historian who I've really come to respect and have a really positive relationship with these days and talk a lot about this stuff with. And it's, yeah, that's the funny thing, you know, when I started after that Bathsheba book, I started writing Guardian articles in this space and suddenly it was like, hey, you know, the Academy is not my enemy at all. These people, we're all at the same table here and we're all having having the discussion and it's been really productive, I must say. I must say I read a critique of the Academy in here in, in, in some ways that I liked, that I found very productive and very reflective. I don't know if, if that was your aim. One of the other things that you use is fictional book excerpts in the chapters. So we hear Rennie's voice through these little excerpts that start the beginning of the chapters. Can you tell me about those? What, what work are they doing and how did you come up with that idea? Yeah, I mean, that was, dare I say, that was that was kind of fun. <laughs> writing, writing the book or parts of it that Rennie himself would have written, you know, Black Men and White Lies, I think it was called, you know, the Aborig- the Australian Aborigine, lowercase a on the Aborigine, of course, you know, for the times and me. So one of the things I've done really over the past six or seven years, particularly since writing this book, was um, log into online secondhand book auctions. And I picked up boxes of books by and about those early to mid 20th century anthropologists and, and some prior to that. And all of these books are sort of, they're self-aggrandizing to, to an extent. They're all very competitive. Like there was a great sense that these academic and autodidact anthropologists and ethnologists were, were hoarding, were taking as much um, material and intellectual, cultural material as they can so that they knew about it because they thought that this was a fallacy that they were documenting the, you know, extinction of the race in inverted commas. And there was this great race on and competition between them. So really finding that voice for Rennie's book and setting it up at the beginning of um, each chapter with, with, you know, a couple of lines from it, it wasn't hard. There was plenty of inspiration from, from these, these books. You know, ditto Rennie's voice in a way. I was, I was going to ask you, that was my next question was actually about the, there's large sections where Patrick finds an audio recorder and Rennie, Rennie is actually, and this is very interesting, pretty much recording his own story to try to capture his own historical narrative in a way to lay down the story he once told about himself. But we actually read this in the book as audio transcript in a, in a sense. We, we hear, we hear the audio recorder playing and it gets played to a few people in the, in the story as well. I really liked this as a, as a narrative tactic as, as, and it also spoke to the academic mode of inquiry and, and the extractive data practices you're talking about. We go out, we audio record people, we, we take their stories and we take them back in that physical form back into the university. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, uh, thank you for that. I'm glad it worked for you. I I had to figure out a way to authentically relay a first-person voice of Rennie who was 
you know, the grandfather who was who was long dead. So there is this absolutely chaotic archive. Rennie kept everything, you know, and that archive, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that would be kind of an academic historian's dream in a way because there's just so much there. For Patrick, it's just junk. He just wants a document that's going to be <laughs> telling his grandfather's story in simple terms, you know, without without all that kind of complication and nuance. But anyway, he finds these tapes and he thinks, oh, great, the old man's just going to tell me his story, but it's it's kind of part recollection of, of a guy who's uh, he's drug addicted, he's drinking too much, he's very old, he's maybe got dementia, he's probably having suicidal ideation and it's part confessional and part justification. So somewhere in there is the truth and when you kind of, <laughs> kind of balance it against the, that book that he's written, it all kind of becomes quite confusing. But I think there's a through line in it um, because in the end his conscience sort of can't help itself, if, if you like. But, yeah, it took me took me a long time to figure out that device. It wasn't, well, I had his voice. It was not simple to, simple to figure out the, the notion of the little micro cassette recorders and, and the, t- the tapes. But the thing I enjoyed about it was, getting the sound of life into it, you know, his dogs and the, you know, he was an incessant TV watcher as maybe a lonely old man would be. And, um, you know, you hear the kettle boiling and all that sort of stuff. No, as someone who likes audio and I think a lot about taping people and taping environments, I'm talking to you now in your house. Like there's, there's a lot of sensitivity to what's going on. You hear the dogs barking. He walks away at times and just leaves the tape recorder running. It runs out at one point. Um, I think he falls asleep. I can't remember it another time. It's not just like put the tape on, record it and turn it off. There's a real sensitivity to the, the environment of that place. And you get a sense of where he is. And he is, as you say, in this archive of a vast archive of material, which yes, academics would love to come across. And it kind of flows into another question I had about process as well. You talk a a lot about Patrick using research assistants and other things as a kind of tool for going through the material. He, as you just said, he doesn't want to spend the hard work going through the material. He'll use research assistants to summarize it all and just bring him some little vignettes that he can use all you know, he even says he, he will make them up if he needs to. So a real commentary on kind of historical research ethics as well, I think, in there. Yeah, and, you know, as someone who's used researchers myself, you know, I'm kind of aware of the sensibilities of that. And, you know, I know there's been all sorts of different stories that academic historians have told me about their academic forebears, you know, appropriating the work of, um, of researchers. So it's kind of not just the popular historian or journalist who'll do that. But yeah, I guess I guess there is that ethical question that, that turns up. You know, I've written in a column or two, you know, history is not the same as story, you know. You know, you can take the story out of, out of history, I suppose, but it stops being history when you do it. Yeah. It becomes his story, you know. And I guess I'm sort of playing in that space a bit. And like in a way, I've mentioned osmosis before. I think probably because of my, you know, nonfiction journalism in this space for so long. It's just a thought process I'm pretty conversant with. It's not something I necessarily did really consciously. Um, like my view about 
you know, the national story and, and, and history is that it's a pretty big table. There's room for everyone and there's, there's no better time for everyone to be there than, than now, given that there seems to be a sensibility, at least amongst a new federal government, that now is the time to confront some of this stuff. Wanted to ask you about Tamar and Jericho, the two key Aboriginal characters in this story. And I think right up the front of the interview, you said to me that you wouldn't inhabit them. And I think by that, you mean you wouldn't speak in first person from those characters. You wouldn't speak for Aboriginal people on behalf of them. But yet there's a story here about them. And you largely tell their story as far as I can tell, through the eyes of largely Patrick, Patrick's interactions with them. But they, but they come across as extremely powerful and strong and important figures in this story. Um, there is a lot of complexity to those two characters. I would argue they're actually the most complex, some of the most complex characters in this book. What was it like to deal with the tension of writing that part of the narrative? So... Sort of a couple of things in terms of in terms of my motive, you know, my Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander friends, a lot of whom are writers, um, had sort of said to me over recent years when I was already working on the book and wondering if I I was wondering if I could pull it off, if I could do it, whether I should keep doing it, and they were sort of saying to me quite often, a lot of them that, you know, we are just really really tired of carrying. The whole weight for telling this story, whether it's in fiction or or journalism, you know, every January comes around and we're having to tell the colonisers what they need to know about our sensibilities about Invasion Day, Australia Day. You know, it's time for more non-Indigenous writers to do the work. Anyway, that kind of gave me um, the means to keep going, really, the reason to keep going with it. I was never going to, I would never inhabit Indigenous characters and the only way I could write these characters was through the eyes of Patrick who is self-aware enough to to see them for who they are and they are strong and proud but also complex. They're not perfect people. Um, You know, Jericho's can be um, a bit arrogant, a a bit up himself as one of the other black characters, Aki says. Tamar is, she can be a bit uncertain about herself emotionally. She's had a complicated background, but they do emerge as really driving forces in this story. And I think the thing I realised as I kind of finished the book and when I was rewriting bits of it and I did a lot of rewriting was that really it's ended up that Patrick is kind of portrayed in the book through their eyes with with all his faults um, and with all his frailties. And they keep trying to find some good in him and he can't find it in himself. But I guess ironically, because one of the things I was doing was, was trying to flip this white saviour trope to the only place this guy, and as it turns out, his grandfather could feel safe in the whole world was in Jesus Town with these people. So that's, that's kind of a complicated way of answering your question maybe. No, it uh, makes sense, definitely. It's exactly how I was reading those characters. You actually added a few more dimensions to it. I'd like to end, actually, with the idea of historical fiction itself as a sort of genre. I don't know if you'd call your book historical fiction. You're shaking your heads. No, I mean, it kind of of ends up being 
categorized with it, you know. Um, but I'm kind of threading together fragments of things that did actually happen with a total layer of imagination. Um, but there's a truth to it because this stuff happened happened all over. I, I, I don't know what I call it. Other people have called it mystery. I don't really call it that either. And it, it sort of, I feel like I've, you know, I haven't reinvented the wheel, but what I didn't want to do, you know, I don't read a lot of crime fiction, but there's a lot of stories, a lot of books you look at the moment about small towns with big secrets, you know, and the secret never seems to be that, hey, they dispossessed and killed all the Aboriginal people, you know, and stole their remains. So I did, I wanted to go there uh, because I felt like it was an important Australian story, but I guess people will categorise it however they will. I, I don't really know. It defies genre a little bit, I think. Excellent. I won't ask you the question about um, historical fiction then. Maybe I'll finish with this. There's a part of the book where Patrick is talking to an Aboriginal man who has spent some time outside of Jesus Town. He played football. This is an exchange between the two about basically why he came back and this footballer got into some trouble. And the text is, they all love writing about me, how I was stuck between two worlds, all the same old cliched bullshit. What they meant was I was a black fella, couldn't go all the way in football without flying off the rails. One dickhead wrote I was just like Benelong, wedged between two cultures, always flying off on the piss. Wasn't true about him either. What I really love about that very short paragraph, actually, and even those two sentences is, or a couple of sentences, is there's a lot of historical detail in that writing there. And this occurs throughout the book, actually. You're in the contemporary moment, but you're weaving historical detail, whether it be land rights or mining, or here a, a story about Benelong and what happened to Benelong in the first early stages of the colonial invasions. And uh, I guess my question here, if you're not writing historical fiction, what, and, you know, I will, I could possibly agree with you there, what is it like to try to deal with the historical archive in that way and weave it into a contemporary story in, in the way that you're doing there, which is, is really quite complex, really? I guess because, Dallas, as a, as a journalist, I've written... I've written so much about about that history, particularly some of the Sydney history since living here. And, you know, Benelong really interested me for the way the archive, you know, the, um, the ADB, for example, the way he's remembered is as a drunk who was, you know, kind of dispossessed and, and separated from his people. But Benelong had a really interesting life. He was a lot of things and he died over it over at Kissing Point with his kids around him and as a tribal leader, you know, sure, he liked to drink, but this whole colony ran on drink, you know, everyone, everyone drank. I didn't have to think too hard about the parallel between Aki, the footy player, you know, playing in Melbourne and coming back home and, um, and Benelong and the way they were, they were typecast. So it kind of happened without too much thought, really. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to say, and I hope it kind of wears it lightly in that sense too. Sure does. Well, it's a great book, and thank you for spending a bit of time with me this morning talking about it. Listen, Dallas, thank you, thank you very much for the, for the great reading and for the engagement with it. I really appreciate it. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Paul Daly about his book, Jesus Town. And we've got some great interviews to come in this Festival of Urbanism and City Road Podcast Book Club. So make sure you visit our website at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.